Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. This is the last teaching, as it were, that Jesus gives his disciples on that evening. Uh, the next chapter will step right in. The, in fact, after the, the last thing I read, he's going to lift his head and look, and look up into heaven and begin to pray. So this is his final, final comments to them. And this is a, one of those classic passages where for years I read through this passage and I think, huh, that's strange. And I want to just move on. And I don't see anything particularly there. I don't see any, any you know, like, what, what are you going to get out of that? Although I take back, you know, he says, uh, I have overcome the world, you know, world, yeah, tribulation, but I've overcome the world. Hallelujah. And that's a great statement. But that's kind of like, I, I would cherry pick that out and say, well, yeah, and I'd move on. Anybody do that with the Bible? See, that's why we're going through it, uh, really, verse by verse. Because I don't know what it means. And so I can only tell you the next few sections that I really understand. So when I start studying this passage we're looking at, it's not until I, I get into the original language and I begin to look through it and I begin to really listen. And with the Holy Spirit, I say, Lord, please show me what is being said here. What is happening here? And at some point, he opens it up and I think, that's really cool. How did I ever miss that? And I think you're going to see the same thing. This is a great passage. Strange, but great. <laughs> Father, open the word. Yeah. Open our hearts to the word. We love Jesus. He is our Lord. He is our rabbi. He is our teacher. We have come to hear from him. I pray for the grace to let you speak through me, Father. In Jesus' powerful name, amen. amen. All right, John 16, we'll start at verse 29. Actually, what I'm going to do is start a little earlier. I want to show you some of the... Some of the dialogue that took place. I'll start up at verse 16. We've seen this before. When in an earlier sermon, Jesus says in verse 16 there, John chapter 16, A little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Pretty basic stuff, wouldn't you agree? I'm, uh, I'm going to be gone and then I'll be back. That's not complicated thought. Some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing he's telling us? A little while and you will not see me in a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. I mean, it's really downright embarrassing uh, that they don't understand it, but that's, uh, I'll comment later on that. So, when they, so they were saying, what is this that he says, a little while, and we do not know what he's talking about. And Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, are you deliberating together about this? That I said a little while, and you will not see me, and a little while again, and you will see me. Truly, I say to you, and then he gives this illustration of a, of a woman who goes through childbirth. And he says, there's a season of pain and sorrow and weeping, but it'll be followed by joy. And the joy will be so great, like a, like a woman who's given birth to a child, that she's so in love with that little new baby that she, at least to some degree, forgets what she had to go through to get that child. It's worth it, you might say. He gives that illustration. And uh, then with that in mind, go down to verse 29. He, he said, I came forth from the Father, in verse 28, and I've come into the world, and I'm leaving the world again, and I'm going to the Father. And his disciples said, lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using uh, an allegory, you know, an illustration like a, like a grapevine or a, or, a, or a woman who's pregnant. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered. Would you say scattered? scattered. Each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the father's with me. These things I've spoken to you so that in me, you may have peace in the world. You, may, you have tribulation, but take courage. 
I have overcome the world. That verse 33 is a great one. Would you say it out loud with me? These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Isn't that kind of strange, the way it goes? The way the disciples comment, their, their, their responses, what they're saying. The whole thing is a little, huh, and you want to just move on. But let's have a look. Faith under pressure. Jesus' disciples keep surprising us. You would think that by the final evening prior to his arrest, they would have developed a strong, unshakable faith. After all, they've been watching him minister and listening to him teach for the past two and a half years. What greater miracle did he need to perform? Or how much clearer could he be in telling them who he was and why he'd come? They had seen things no human eye had seen in all of history. And yet, as Jesus' ministry on earth was drawing to a close, their faith was still weak. It appears to have fluctuated with the moment. After some great miracle, they would cry out that he was the Son of God. But as he kept, as he kept progressing toward the cross, they seemed to struggle more and more to understand what he was trying to tell them. Do you see this? Yeah, there's moments, you know, I mean, if you think of it, how, how do you, if you were Peter, James, and John, and you were up on, I think it was Mount Hermon, and you saw Jesus transfigured in front of your eyes having a conversation with Moses and Elijah, would you doubt? I mean, you know, at, at that point, they're going, oh, you're the son of God, son of God, son of God. And, and here they are again going, you know, we think you came from heaven. Do you see what I mean by fluctuate? It goes, in fact, if you don't kind of pick that up, you'd almost, you think, what's, what are these, the Bible writers doing? I mean, it's just like, they go like this. They go up, they go down. They go up, they go down. But I think that's the way it was. I think that's accurate. The passage we're studying today is one more example of the disciples changing moods. They had been debating among themselves about a statement Jesus made when he suddenly confronted them. Without overhearing their conversation... He was able to tell them what they had discussed. And then using some of their exact words, he proceeded to answer their question. That really impressed them. They marveled that he knew their thoughts even before they had spoken a word to him. And that prompted them to tell him that they were now convinced that he was God's son. In effect, they were announcing to him that they finally believed in him. That must be so heartwarming for Jesus. You know, have you ever heard the term damned with faint praise? You know, he's here at the end of this, they're off. They go, you know, you can read our minds. You must be from heaven. Thanks, guys. This is, this is wonderful. Well, I mean, what a, what a situation. They said that after examining the evidence, they had concluded that he had come from God. They intended their words to be affirming, but their statement actually revealed a very low level of faith. The sort of faith that would collapse as soon as it was put under pressure. Jesus replied that when Judas arrived with the soldiers to arrest him, they would all abandon him and scatter like frightened sheep. But Jesus didn't leave them with that discouraging assessment of their faith. He quickly redirected their attention to another source of faith. He said that if they would believe what he taught them that evening, they would find a source of faith that would last. One that would bring them peace even in the midst of suffering. He said their new faith would rest on the confidence that he had conquered the world. And that's still the only foundation of faith that lasts. We need to understand what he meant by those words. So we too can put our faith in the one who has conquered the world. Will you say conquered the world? That's what he says he did. That's the word. Uh, we, ours has overcome or various kinds of things, but he uses the word Nike. You know, you, you reckon uh, Nike, we get that, that word for the shoes and all. Nike, it's, it's the Greek word for victory, for triumph, for conquering. The disciples had been confused when Jesus said, a little while and you will no longer behold me. And again, a little while and you'll see me. But before they could ask what the statement meant, he had answered their question using the very words they'd spoken among themselves privately. He had done so before, but this time it made a much stronger impression. 
So no sooner had he finished answering their unspoken question by stating that he'd come to earth from heaven and was going to return to heaven, than the disciples told him that they were finally convinced he was indeed God's son. They said, behold, now you are speaking plainly, not using an allegory. Now we see that you have supernatural insight into all things and don't need anyone to ask you a question because you already know what they're thinking. Because of this, we believe that you came forth from God. John says, Jesus answered them, is it just now that you finally believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already arrived in which you will be scattered each to his own hiding place and you will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father's with me. What a sad situation. Probably within an hour and a half of his arrest, Jesus' disciples were telling him that, they ex- that at last they accepted his claim that he was God's son. I want you to see, a, I'm going to make a distinction. There is faith that is generated by us. We use logic. We use deduction. We think through the facts. And this is not wrong faith. But it isn't the kind of stuff that lasts under pressure. And if you've, if you, you'll know people who have said, well, you know, I've analyzed the facts about Jesus. I've seen the, the, the pros and the cons, and I've seen the, the evidence about his resurrection, and I've seen the evidence, uh, you know, the, 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 the archaeological things. And I think he is, I think he really existed. I think he really lived. I think maybe he really died on a cross. I believe, you know. That's not wrong. It's not bad. But boy, when, when suffering comes, that stuff just evaporates like a mist in the morning. And we're instantly accusing God of forgetting us and failing us, right? What kind of faith endures? What kind of faith sticks with you when suffering comes? Because this word tribulation that your Bible has, it's, it's th- thlipsis. It means suffering. So he says, in the, when suffering comes, he says, that won't last. In fact, when trouble arrives, you're, you're going to leave me instantly. You're going to back off and I'm going to be all by myself. But God the Father is with me. Hallelujah. Even though he must have known the weak condition of their faith all along, Jesus' replied seems to indicate astonishment. <laughs> Don't you love the way he said it? Oh, oh you believe, do you? <laughs> You believe, do you? You're going to abandon me in a heartbeat. After years of watching him minister and listening to him teach, these 11 men admitted that only now they'd concluded that who he was, he was who he'd been saying he was. And that was that what finally convinced them was his ability to read their minds. So faith is obviously, their faith is very fragile, and Jesus knew it would collapse under pressure. So he bluntly told them that they would abandon him as soon as he was attacked. But the way he told them about their failure actually meant, was meant to give them hope. And I'll just tell you this, this part. He used the word scattered. Remember I had you say the word scattered? That's, he's, when, you're, when you're a Jew and you've, you've memorized huge chunks of the Bible and you've grown up in it all your life. When you just quote a particular word or a particular verse, it's going to trigger for everybody. They're all raised. It's like, it's like early America or, or England. You know, you go back a few generations and you could just toss off part of a verse. And everybody got it. They all, they all knew the verse you were talking about. They were raised with it. It's familiar. So when he says scattered, he says, you will all scatter. And he uses that word. Instantly, they're thinking Zechariah 13. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Say that. Strike the shepherd. It's a, prof- it's a prophecy about Messiah. and I mean, it's intended to be. It's right in the middle of that stuff. It says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. When you, the Messiah will be struck and his disciples scattered like sheep. And so he says to them, not only does he say, yeah, you'll leave me instantly, but he says, in effect, and it was prophesied. You see the power of that? He's telling them, that this is exactly what's in the prophet Zechariah. That they are now part of this great drama. They are part of this great situation. Uh, it was prophesied hundreds of years before, there and elsewhere, that they would forsake him. 
the comfort of those words would later give his disciples was that the knowledge that God had known their faith would fail before they were tested. And yet he still intended to be merciful and restore them. If you go on with Zechariah, there's God restores uh, two thirds and he brings them back. And so not only will they scatter, but the promise in the word is they'll also be brought back. So he was giving them hope. He was not only telling them your faith is weak, but he was saying, but God won't forsake you. He will not forsake you. Then no sooner had Jesus told his disciples that the faith they had at the moment would fail when persecution arose. He assured them that in the future their lives would be filled with peace. He said, these things I have spoken to you so that in me, would you say in me? In me, you may have peace. If they would put into practice the truths that he had taught them that evening, their lives would be filled with the peace of God's presence. As we have seen to be in Jesus meant that the disciples would seek to follow him and depend on the power of the Holy Spirit, just as he had followed the lead of the Father and depended on the Holy Spirit's power. And then he said, in the world you have suffering. But be bold in the confidence that I have conquered the world. Now, that's my translation. Would you read that with me? In the world. Come on, everybody. In the world, you have suffering. But be bold in the confidence that I have conquered the world. That's that, that, the, they, you have be of good cheer and stuff like that. What a, what a, a weak <laughs> way to translate that word. You know, be of good cheer. No, it's, it's the word means be bold be, because you're confident. That's the kind of word it is. So he says, in the world, you've got suffering. But be bold, confident that I have conquered the world. That's what he said. Now, you hear the strength of it? He didn't scold them because their faith would soon fail. He didn't despair that he'd spent the, the past two and a half years discipling the wrong men. I mean, come on. If it had been some of us, we'd have gone, oh, for heaven's sakes, I wasted two and a half years on you guys. That's, if, you, if I were your, yeah. That's why I'm not. Okay. Instead, he encouraged them to believe that what he was about to do by his cross and resurrection would bring a great spiritual victory. It would give him supremacy over the world. In this case, he used the word world to refer to the forces that come against a believer, beginning with the devil himself, but also including the humans who have fallen under his control. You may get persecuted, you may have suffering, but I've overcome the world. I have broken the power of the devil, and I have broken the, his, his capacity to hurt you uh, in, the, in the sense of spiritually. I have broken his power to give you death. I have taken from him the weapons he uses to break you. Jesus was going to conquer the world by taking away from the devil, here's the weapon, the condemnation he uses to hold people in his grip. His cross would defeat the power of sin to condemn us, and his resurrection would defeat the power of death to hold us in the grave. Did you follow that? The power the devil has over you is the power to condemn you for your sins. He can go before God and charge you with what you've done and demand for justice. And he has a right to do it, and he does it all the time. He is the accuser of the brethren. He's your accuser. He, he is constantly seeking to go before God and say, Steve Shell has done this. He said this. He's thought this. He deserves your judgment. He, he deserves death for what he's done. He wants to condemn me and cast that against me. Fortunately, I have at the right hand of the Father an, a lawyer. I have a lawyer over there. That's, the, that's what advocate means. I have somebody standing there going, you're right, Steve Shell's a, a, a real case. I, I admit that. I admit that, Father. I, I know. I know. Oh, I know. What did else did he? Oh. But he's mine. I died for him, and by his faith, he's righteous. And so I have constantly have my, my, my advocate interceding for me. Though, but, so he has taken away from the devil the power to condemn you. 
He, he has taken away from, from the devil the power to hold you in the grave. Death must let go because of Jesus Christ. He didn't, oh, nope, down here. His cross would defeat the power of sin to condemn us. His resurrection would defeat the power of death to hold us in the grave. He was about to enter into a great spiritual battle. And he would emerge victorious. That too was clearly prophesied. It would be a battle for souls. And by his victory, Jesus would take away from the world the weapons it uses to destroy people. The father would also reward him for his obedient sacrifice by giving him supreme authority over all creation, both spiritual, physical, and spiritual. Look at that arm, that, that length of scriptures I give you is as long as your arm. You see it? Daniel, Matthew, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Peter, and I could find more if you wanted them. All which say Jesus Christ has been made Lord, King of kings and Lord of lords. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. To the glory of God the Father. God the Father, because of what Christ did on the cross, has taken his son and said, I call all the creation, spiritual and physical. Paul makes a point in 1 Corinthians to say, of course, not the Father himself. But he says, everything else submits to my son. So we are living right now in a season of history in which God's will is that everything bow its knee to Jesus Christ. That is his will. That he's, 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 it, he, he, he wants all to come to faith in his son. He wants all to bow their knee to his son. And he has given his son authority over everything. What did Jesus say in Matthew 28? He says, go into all the world. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Amen. Say that. All authority in heaven. Say it again. All authority in heaven and earth. And then he said, go. With, and I'll go with you. You see it? I'll go with you. This is the authority that I have. So he told his disciples they could boldly face the future even though it would be filled with suffering because they could always appeal to him for help. Jesus told his disciples that the kind of faith they had that evening would fail under pressure almost instantly because it was something they had generated by their own logic. But then he pointed to another source of faith and said that that faith would carry them peacefully through all the trials that, that lay ahead. So the question we want to answer today is what is that faith and how do we get it? The faith that saves us is a gift from God. It's not something we generate by using our own logic. Now this is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And this is my translation. So read it with me out loud. I want to, and we're going to do it twice. I want you to really get it in your heart. For by grace you are the ones who have been saved through faith. And this is not from you. It is the gift of God, not from works, so that no one may boast. Let's do it again. For by grace, you are the ones who have been saved through faith. And this is not from you. It is the gift of God, not from works, so that no one may boast. What is not from you? Faith. Well, then where does it come from? If I'm saved by faith, where, and, and, it, and I don't generate that faith, then how do I get it? So if saving faith is a gift of God, the question we have to ask this is, to whom does he give this faith, this gift? And we need to be very careful in how we answer that question because some people answer it wrongly. They think God gives saving faith to some and denies it to others. Based on nothing that person has done, good or bad. But thankfully, Jesus answers this important question for us. Earlier in his ministry, he said this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has 
given me. Say, given me. I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Did you see it in there? All that the Father gives me will come to me. So somehow they belong to the Father, and then the Father takes them and gives them to the Son. How does that work? In the next breath, after declaring that he had overcome the world, he would say, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh. There's that authority. That to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. All whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Did you hear it? He kept speaking about those whom the father gave him. So people that come to a true faith in Jesus are people who first belonged to the father. And then the father actually gives them as a gift to his son. So who are those people who belong to the father? The answer is really quite obvious. Everywhere you look in the Bible, the father chooses those who are willing to do what? Repent. Yeah. You know, I, I was... I, just passage after passage comes to my mind, but one, one real beautiful one, it's Isaiah 40. You know this one? It says, prepare ye the way of the Lord. This was the, uh, this was the hallmark passage for John the Baptist. They said, what is your ministry? What, what are you doing? Why are you here? Who, who appointed you? And he says, I'm a voice in the wilderness call, crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. And, 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 and he goes right to that one. And then that passage in Isaiah goes on like this. It's in Isaiah 40. It says, it says Let it bring, may every mountain be brought down, every valley lifted up. And he says, the, the, the rough places made smooth, and the, and, the, and the narrow places become a broad plain, that the king of glory may come in. Now, what is all this, all this uh, construction work? You're raising up valleys. You're bringing down mountains. You're making it smooth. You're making the narrow places wide. What are you doing? You're repenting. You're cleaning out of your life the things that obstruct the Lord. How do I have the glory of the Lord come? I begin, I begin to repent and humble myself before the Lord and let him take out of me those things that block his glory. It's a clean, do you see it? It goes all through the Bible. They are those who are willing to come toward the light. Remember how he said this? He said there are people who when they see the light, they, come, they go away from the light lest their deeds should be exposed, reproved, corrected. In other words, when they see the truth of God, they actually go the other way because they don't want to repent. They want to keep doing what they're doing. He says, but those who come to the light... He said, they are the ones who, who they want to, it becomes evident, they draw to the light when they see it, that their deeds may be uh, exposed, what is it, uh, that they have been wrought in God. That, they, that they're the doers of truth, isn't that the word? That they're doers of truth. And allow God to convict them of sin and show them their need for mercy. The, the, God seeks to convict everyone in the world of sin. Meaning their rebellion against his authority, their selfishness, and their pride. They try to live without him. When I think of the word sin, I come up with those three, three particular elements. There's, there's undoubtedly lots of others, I suppose. But the first thing is, is rebellion. The heart of the matter is, don't tell me no. When Adam and Eve took the fruit from the tree, uh, what was it? It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, who decides what's right and wrong? If I leave the fruit on the tree, God does. If I pick it, I do. So the very heart of, of, of humans being separated from God was grabbing that thing and saying, I'll decide for myself what's right and wrong. I'm not having God telling me what's right and wrong. Now that kind of thing doesn't happen anymore, but way back in the garden, <laughs> you can see it was a problem. The second the thing I, I see there is selfishness. Just the raw thing of I put my needs ahead of yours. And, and, and if you look at human history, you can see how extreme that gets. 
I won't even go into it. I was watching some things this just realizing there is nothing humans won't stoop to uh, if they think it's in their own best interests, you know, apart from God's restraint. It's just appalling. And the third thing is that independence, that pride. I don't need God. I can handle this myself. Now, I know you've never thought that or felt that, but there's all of us tend to, the Bible says, want to do it alone, want to handle it for ourselves. It's hard for us to say, I need God. It's hard for us to submit to God and depend on God. We feel like there's something wrong with that. I mean, if you talk to an unbeliever, what will they say about your religion? You got a crutch. You got a crutch. Because see, they don't need a crutch. They can just crawl along the ground without one. (laughs) Isn't that kind of it? Don't we all, what, what the Bible would say is, yeah, you need a crutch. In fact, you need a wheelchair and you need a whole, we all do. We are all in need of the Lord's provision. We can't do life alone. We weren't made to do life alone. You weren't designed to do life alone. You were designed to do it with him. Pride says, now I'll go it alone. So those are the three elements when I say the word sin that come to my mind. So, he wants to show them, everybody in the world, these things so that they will turn away from them and call on him for mercy. God wants to give us mercy. Now, this crossed my mind recently. I was listening to some people talking about Jesus. And, you know, if you listen to different preachers and different people talk about Jesus, they become very different Jesuses. Have you noticed uh, people say all sorts of things about Jesus, and some of them I don't even recognize. <laughs> you know? um, and I was listening to somebody, and what I, as, what, what, I, what I was given to understand is that Jesus is enormously nice, and he really doesn't care what you do. He likes you just the way you are. Now, the word for that is tolerant. Tolerant means I like you just the way, the way you are. You don't have to change for me to like you. I just like you, like you. There's a difference. Compare this word, tolerance, with mercy. What does mercy say? He, he loves you, and he will forgive you when you repent. That he doesn't change his standards. He wants you, but his standard doesn't move. Tolerance says there is no standard. Mercy says, oh, there's standards, but the love of God would call you to repentance and obedience. Great difference, isn't there? Two different Jesuses. Two different Jesuses are being, are being sold right now in the marketplace. He wants them to discover and admit that they are helpless. This means all the people in the world. And to live a life, to live a life good enough to please him. To those without a Bible... He reveals his greatness through his creation and convicts them of sin through their conscience. Romans 1, he says it clearly. He wants them to cry out to him for mercy and, to, and trust that somehow he has made mercy possible. You know, there's people who say, what about those who've never heard? There's a gospel for those who've never heard. I just gave it to you. The Bible, say, the, the Bible says that God has shown his greatness through his creation. People know, people know there's got to be somebody. I mean, you, you know, you can go through all of this and maybe you'll have all kinds of layers, but there's a sense that there must be someone who made this. It's too beautiful, too powerful, too enormous, something, someone made this. Every heart knows that. Every honest person standing anywhere on planet Earth has that sense. That must be. And I'll tell you the other thing every person on planet Earth has, and that's a conscience. Now, you may have been told by some, some uh, wild-eyed sociologists that no, they don't have a conscience, that uh, yeah, oh, everybody is just culturally uh, produced, and some people's conscience, you know, they, they feel guilty if they don't kill somebody, you know, kind of stuff, nonsense. That's baloney. And that was, that was kind of taught by a particular uh, sociologist that I won't name. But the truth is, you go anywhere. And you watch people, even who, who do some of the most violent sorts of things, they almost always have to work themselves up to do it. They have to get drunk. They have to get drugged. They have to pound drums. They have to do whatever it takes. They have to work themselves into that state so they can get themselves to, do, to violate their conscience. 
There is a conscience in every human being. And there's a, vo- there's a sense inside. This is wrong. All of us have it. This is wrong. And, 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 and these things are right. And so you and I show our rebellion or our obedience by even how we engage our conscience. Well, you, I may mean, no one have maybe ever preached the Bible to me. But you can tell if I'm a, rebe- rebel, a rebel. You can tell how I act. By the way, I deal with my conscience in the sense that there's a creator who must know me somewhere. To those with a Bible, he convicts them by calling them to obey holy standards in his word. Then anyone who's honest with themselves will be forced to admit that they can't do it. One of Jesus' main goals in the Sermon on the Mount was to convince people who were trying to earn their salvation by keeping the laws of Moses, that even if they were able to keep the external behaviors of the law, they could not make their hearts obey its internal demands. In God's eyes, because of their attitudes, they were all murderers, adulterers, and faithless to their vows. Do you know what I'm saying? Remember how Jesus says this? and You think, where is he going with this? He's talking to people who are trying to earn their righteousness to get eternal life by obeying the laws of Moses. And they think in their own minds, we've done it. Got this down. And so he says, so the Bible says to you, don't murder. But if you murder in your heart, in God's eyes, you're a murderer. Bible said, you, you may say, I've never stabbed anybody. But you're a murderer and you've violated the law because it's not only what you do, it's what you think. See, he takes this and he puts it right inside and says, nah, how about your heart? He says, he says, you say, I've never committed adultery. Well, have you lifted your eyes and lusted after someone? He says, well, then you're an adulterer. He says, have you, have you made vows and promised them? And you come up with all sorts of rationales as to why you didn't have to keep that vow. You're a vow breaker. You hear this? What's he doing? Is he mean? No, he's not mean. What he's trying to do is say, give it up. Quit trying to earn your way to heaven. You're all failing. You're failing. You're not going to make it like this. So what you should, then the the answer is, well, Jesus, what should we do? What's his answer? Repent. You, you need to, to recognize you're a failure. Call on God for mercy. Amen. And by the way, I came to die for you. You see it? That's what he's doing. He's bringing them. He's preparing them to hear the gospel. God goes after the heart and shows us our sin before he can show us his, this, the answer, the cross. He has to show you who you are until right. he can show you he shows you what he's done for you because otherwise you don't even want it. He was, <clears throat> pardon me, he was trying to lead them to the Father because the Father is, isn't looking for people who are hoping to earn eternal life by their good works. He is looking for people who are willing to cry out to him for mercy. And to trust that he is good and has made a way to pay for their sins. These are the ones he gives as a gift to his son. Did that make sense? That's who he gives to his son. As soon as someone stops hoping in their own good works. Or refuses to remain hopeless because of their own failures. They are ready to understand the cross. They now, they, now belong, they now belong to the Father and he gives them faith to believe in his Son. This, if you, can, if you and I understand this, this is why in many ways it's easier for a person who's led a very bad life to come to God than it is for a person who's led a very good life to come to God. You, you follow that? What, what, is, what advantage does a person who's led a very bad life have? They got no excuses. Like I, you know, you name it, I did it. And so I have nothing to defend myself with. I know I'm a sinner. 
a very good person, uh, they're in this position going, boy, compared to a lot of people I know, I'm doing very well. <laughs> I, you know, I'm honest, basically. I, I've been reasonably loyal to my spouse. I have, uh, uh, you know, I'm a good person. I'm nice. People like me. And so in their minds, if there is some, if God is just, for heaven's sakes, he's going to let people like me into heaven. People like you, I don't know. People like me, we're in. Remember Jesus' uh, parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember this one? So that he says there's two men, they come into the temple, and they walk up to worship God, and the, and the Pharisee says... God, I thank you. I am not like other men. He says, I tithe of everything. And, you know, I, I, and I, I, I give to the poor. I do all of these things. I am not like that tax collector over there. And then the tax collector over there, he doesn't even dare, it says, Jesus says, he doesn't even dare lift his eyes to God. He's so ashamed of himself. He's a thief. He's a, who knows what. He comes in there and he's just pounding his chest going, oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right? And he says, I tell you that that tax collector went out of that place forgiven. But the man who stood in his own righteousness stands condemned. You follow this? If you've led a really good life, God help you. We need to pray for you. We need to pray his mercy down on you so you feel good and guilty. If you've led a really bad life, you need to know the mercy and depth of God's love. You need to know he doesn't care how bad. I mean, he cares what you did. He cares how you've destroyed. But that's not the point. He will still love you and save you. There is no bottom to this. No matter what you've done. The mercy of God is deeper and more powerful. Follow that? They now belong to the Father, these who repent. And he gives them faith to believe in his son. And the faith he gives will not be the result of deducing from evidence that Jesus must be who he says he is. It will be a bold confidence that he has conquered the power of the devil to condemn us and the power of the grave to hold us. Not only does Jesus give us the gospel, which is the knowledge of how we have been freed from the power of sin and death. But he also gives us himself. And he has been given authority over all things. A wonderful part of his gift to us is that he invites us to appeal to that authority when we go through suffering. He says it will bring us peace. No matter what I go through, no matter what I face, no matter what I'm having to endure, I can call on Jesus who has all authority in heaven and earth. He is with me. And his power and authority are with me. And I can call on him. And he says, if you, he says, in this world, you have suffering. You have tribulation. But he says, not be of good cheer. He says, be bold and confident that I have conquered the world. He says, that'll give you peace. The faith that can endure under pressure. The faith that brings peace in the midst of suffering is a gift from God. Rather than something we generate within ourselves by using our own logic. It's a gift God gives to all who are willing to repent and acknowledge their sin. To the heart that, God, that sees God's holiness and its own unworthiness. God reveals the power of the cross. And he speaks to that heart inviting him or her to trust in Jesus to be their savior. To trust him to protect them from anything that would try to separate them from him. In that moment, God doesn't remove the human will and force the person to believe. This is not uh, a thing where God zaps you and makes you believe. You have surrendered and called on him. You come to him. You have, you have exercised your will. And you said, I, you, and you've humbled yourself. You say, I am a sinner. I have fallen short. I need mercy, not justice. With that heart, God says, yeah, there it is. That's your mind. And, he, and then he does. He gives a gift, a supernatural gift of faith. 
You'll see it in Romans 12. What is it? Verse 4 there. He says, to each one has been given a metron, a measure of faith. To each one. To how many? Yeah, he's given to you a measure of faith. It's a living thing. It's a, it's a powerful thing. He's given you the faith that burns within you. It's from him, not even from you. In that moment, God doesn't remove the human will and force the person to believe. He helps that person believe by letting him or her feel his love. See, that's what happens. Think about the moment you really gave your life to Jesus Christ. I'll bet you felt the love of God. You may not have even known what it was, but you felt his presence, right? Yeah, you did. In fact, some of the best, most wonderful things, the testimonies that you hear of people are people who in some of their darkest moments, their most horrible moments, their greatest failure, their greatest shame, you know, something inside is able to break and say, oh God, and here comes that love. And it's shocking when it arrives. Like, well, how can you love me? Why are you here? Yeah? That's what you talk about in my own life when I, was, when I met the Lord. Like, wh- why do you even know where I am? Who are you? He came in his love. He came in his love. That's, that's him giving you faith. That's him planting his seed in you. Then when the person's spirit reaches out to embrace Jesus... The Father confirms their salvation by sending the Holy Spirit to testify within that he or she truly belongs to him. Listen to Paul. Why don't you receive, read this with me? You have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. That we are children of God. When he gives you that faith, there comes a, test, a, a, a voice within. There comes the Holy Spirit who says to you, you're mine. You're mine. You're a child of God. You'll notice, this is one of the things that makes Christians difficult for people who are not. Is the assurance they have in them. You know, you remember the story of, uh, of, of John Wesley? You remember that name, John Wesley? He started the Methodist church, but that's not, you know. He, he, he was an Anglican uh, pastor. He was one of the most educated men of his day. Uh, and he had no confidence that he belonged, that he would be saved. He was just aching inside. In fact, one of the things that drove him crazy is he, he got on a boat and he sailed to America. He was going to preach to the people in America. And he was on it with a bunch of uh, German Pentecostals. Can you imagine? Yeah. Yeah, they come that way. They were called Moravians. You ever heard that term, Moravians? Well, they're German Pentecostals. So they'd all been baptized in the Holy Spirit on, on you know, there was a wild group. So they went through this terrible storm at sea. And the ship is just crashing and, and creaking and it's going to go under. Wesley is scared spitless. He is just shaking with fear that he's going to die. And here are these, like, what were there? Were there, there was quite a few of them. I, I, I remember how many they were going. They were going to. You have women with babies in their arms and all, and pe- they aren't afraid. They're all sitting there going through this, you know, just crashing and crashing and crashing, and they're singing to the Lord and trusting him. And it was, the difference was so d- clear between his terror and their peace in that horrible moment. It shook him hard. And he thought, what is wrong with me? What is wrong? Where is my assurance? Where is my confidence? He finally got it. Actually, he didn't, get it in, he didn't get it in America. He went back, and he was still, and it was, again, it was a German Pentecostal. <laughs> I like saying that. Who started working with him and having to say, and start taking into the passages that say you're saved, uh, what I've been using tonight, you're saved by faith. He would have taken him to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. You know, he would have, so he's hammering away on, on, on this Wesley. And Wesley says, finally, one evening, he's, he comes into this little chapel on Aldersgate Street. And, and as Peter Bowler was, was preaching, he's that German Pentecostal, out of Luther's 
commentary to the book of Romans. And, uh, and, and Wesley says, as I sat there and listened, suddenly my heart, he says, was strangely warmed. What is it? The love of God. The power of God came over him. And he said, and I knew I was saved. I knew I was saved. What did he get? He got the gift. You see the difference? All the theology in the world, all the reasonings, all the logic, that is not the faith God wants to give us. That stuff, when the pressure comes, it fails like that. But the, the faith God gives, it's real, it lives. It's a seed he puts in. He puts in his living seed inside you, and, and you're his. And he bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. So saving faith is a gift God gives the repentant and it's focused on Jesus' victory over the forces of the world that would prevent us from receiving eternal life. That's exactly what Paul went on to tell the church in Rome a few verses later when he said, why don't you read this too? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And he's quoted that right out of Psalm 44, verse 22. Let's go on. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Who will separate us, says Paul? Will tribulation, same word Jesus just used, same suffering word, phlipsis, <laughs> it, that's the same word, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. And Paul doesn't say, and those things won't happen to you. No, sir, Bob, if you're a Christian, you're going to sail through life. In fact, he says out of Psalm 44, it's promised you are going to be slaughtered like sheep. Great. He says, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly do what conquer through him who loved us in other words they can take my body but they can't take my salvation they can't take my eternity they can't take my future it's all there that's why jesus will say yeah they may kill you but not a hair of your head will perish he's like wait how's that work no that's exactly how it works not a hair of you he, in other words he's got you in his hand and you are his in light of all we've heard, let's listen to Jesus' words once more. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have suffering. But be bold in the confidence that I have conquered the world. He has conquered so that we can overwhelmingly conquer. Not by escaping all suffering, but by having a faith that endures through it. A faith that will endure under pressure. Do you and I have such faith? Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.